According to Dawkins, the best model for a parent is a farmer. You see, kids should be treated just like a weed. Feed them, water them, and then just let them grow. Anything else is child abuse. Stay tuned with us today on Sinners and Saints as we talk about training your children up in the nurture and admonition of secular atheism. In an age of moral bankruptcy, political sleaze, theological confusion, and aimless religion in a mindless church, we're addressing the need for a Bible-based, intellectually rigorous, 21st century Christian faith. This is Sinners and Saints. Theology with an edge. Hey, thanks for joining us today on Sinners and Saints. At long last, we're finally at the end of the delusion. That's right. Today we're taking up the last in our installment in the series on Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion. And today we're going to bring it down to more practical matters. Finally, at the end of this book here, Dawkins takes on the whole issue of children, how that fits into the broader argument for atheism. One of the big things that he's trying to say here is that children who are raised in religious environments and religious homes are basically being abused. That's right. Training your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord is child abuse. Very unclear if you evaluate Dawkins' overall argument what exactly he's trying to do. It seems that maybe he's trying, he's writing to bash stupid religious fundamentalists. Maybe he's writing to generate unfounded hysteria. Maybe he's trying to create a framework for effective social policy so the government can step inside your house and tell you how to raise your children. It's not entirely clear because he never gets specific about what exactly the government should pursue in terms of a policy. But he is trying to point out the outrage of parents training up their children in any kind of religious system and teaching them that that system is authoritarian, dogmatic, and ought to be the lens through which they view reality. Here's the quote. Isn't it always a form of child abuse to label children as possessors of beliefs that they are too young to have thought about? So he may cite extreme examples, what we might term as extreme examples of religious oppression by adults to children. But at the end of the day, he uses all those extreme examples to make the basic point that, in general, it is child abuse to teach a child to embrace a particular religion, especially to label a child, say a Christian child or a Muslim child, based on the beliefs of his parents or his guardians. And again, this is another classic case of Dawkins trying to have his cake and eat it too. He's trying to have it both ways. On the one hand, he's trying to say, well, it's terribly abusive to raise children up under this oppressive system where we're teaching them religious morals and values. So what we need to do is have these young people grow up in homes that are value-free, that are religion-free, And what they need to do is follow my program. And my program is to have this neutral education in a neutral environment and just give children the tools of learning and thought, and then they can figure out for themselves what they want to do. But the problem with that is, is Dawkins is not presenting you a neutral alternative. Yeah, think about that. He wants you to teach your children how to think, but not what to think. And any time that it becomes necessary just for their functioning in the world to teach them what to think, which he acknowledges will happen at some points, all you can do is give them give an honest second guess about what they would choose if they had all the evidence. 
Now, of course, to him that means you teach them secular atheism and what he considers to be a healthy independence of mind. But, of course, that's just begging the question. I mean, we don't agree that he has this neutrality. It's a false understanding of neutrality that he's promoting. We actually believe that his worldview is philosophically indefensible. It's incoherent. And therefore, we would say to teach your child when necessary to think that way is actually unfair and oppressive, unjust, not good for children. Well, actually, what he proposes is completely impossible. If you're a parent, you understand how ridiculous this proposal is, as if it were possible to train your child up in a neutral kind of environment. Everybody knows who has any children that when you tell them not to do something, the very first question you're going to get from your kid is, why? Why, dad? Now, as soon as you as a parent give them a response to that question, you are giving your child an absolute truth. Now, you might say, well, you could just respond as a parent by saying, well, because I said so. But you got to understand something. The next question is going to be, well, who made you boss? Now, there's only a, a certain amount of answers you can finally start giving to these ultimate questions. A child is asking for value statements. They're searching for meaning when they ask why questions. It's impossible to follow the program that he's talking about. There is going to be indoctrination. You cannot escape that. Parents have to, at some level, inculcate values and moral absolutes in the minds of their children in order to train them up effectively. Now, he's not clear. You know, he says, oh, I, I kind of acknowledge that problem. And he says, look, I know there are necessary qualifications to my program here of how to train these children up. But it's not like it's a small problem that you have to figure out the necessary qualifications. And he's so bold with his conclusions. I mean, think about him labeling this idea of passing on your fundamental religious and worldview convictions to your children, labeling that as abuse. If you haven't figured out the necessary qualifications, it doesn't sound to me like you should be so dogmatic about labeling religious parental instruction by the parents to their own children as child abuse. Okay, well, all that brings us back to the start, because you have to understand that Dawkins places his remarks about child abuse and indoctrination of children in the broader context of a very traumatic experience of one young boy named Edgardo Mortira. Now, what happened was, in this instance, this is the 19th century in Italy, this is a Jewish young boy who was uh, taken out of his home by the religious authorities in Italy because he had supposedly been baptized as Roman Catholic. And because he had been baptized Roman Catholic then, the state and the church had an interest in the childhood development of this young boy. And that the best thing for him was to be taken out of the home of his Jewish parents and placed in a convent where he would be raised and trained up by clergymen in the Christian faith. Now, the whole story is completely outlandish, first of all, just from the angle of the baptism. Apparently, it wasn't a church baptism. It was a baptism by uh, a babysitter who thought he was getting sick or something. I can't remember all the uh, exact details of the story, but the point of it is that somehow he gets this baptism from this teenage girl who's watching over him, ba uh, babysitting him one day, and so that constituted a baptism. Somehow that gets to the ears of the religious authorities or the civil authorities, and so they come in, storm the house, take the child away, and train him up in a convent. Now, the whole story is is just extreme, right? 
it's not mainstream. It's not typical. But here's what Dawkins does with the story: is he makes it sound that this is sort of the way it works. Religious people are crazy. Okay, what is most important to them is that they abuse authority. They overstep the bounds of other people's legitimate rights. They'll do anything to get a hold of little skulls full of mush and indoctrinate them in the most extreme religious views possible. And that is the overriding concern, whether they're brought up in uh, safe, family-stable home environments or whether they have to be ripped out of that and placed uh, in the cradle of the Catholic Church in a convent somewhere to be trained. The overriding concern of Christians, of course, is to make sure they disrupt people's lives and they indoctrinate them. The whole story is extreme, okay? But the problem is Dawkins presents this as if it's just situation normal, that all people who have a religious stripe, all Christians— uh, who who baptize their children uh, believe that they have this responsibility to indoctrinate them in this very abusive, harsh, unloving, dogmatic fashion. Well, let's think about this, though, from his atheistic point of view and especially his desire to have evolution as the accepted paradigm. If this is true, that children can be influenced and they can be manipulated this way, then isn't that what evolution has brought about, that children are supposed to be molded by those who are their seniors, their parents particularly? And if this is where everybody's view has gone, see, he doesn't have an argument. He's criticizing something he doesn't like. But on what basis? Because he feels it doesn't go the right way because it's not what he would have chosen? But that's not a legitimate argument. And then to look at the most extreme, this is one of those bad things that you do in a debate where you pull the single most extreme thing you can find and then you give that as the reason why you oppose something rather than looking at how it's ordinarily done. So there's really poor argumentation on his part. Listen in Dawkins' own words words why he chooses uh, this story to illustrate uh, his overarching purpose in the chapter. He says this story and its attitude to children is particularly revealing of the religious mind and the evils that arise specifically because it is religious. You see, (laughs) religion is this ravenous, scary, evil, destructive force Once it gets implanted in people's mind, they do all kinds of horrible things like happened to this poor young boy. He says, in the course of telling this story, I have deliberately refrained from detailing the horrors of the Crusades, the Conquistadores, or the Spanish Inquisition. Cruel and evil people can be found in every century and of every persuasion. And then he goes to reiterate the story that he told about this young boy. Well, my question is, if, we're, if you're willing to label the extremism of some of what happened in the Crusades or the extremism practiced by the conquistadores or the Spanish Inquisition, why aren't you willing, at least objectively, to label some of these events as abusive and perversions of religion? I mean, we're not going to bring up every example in the history of the world about child abuse performed by radical, ridiculous atheists. Why all of a sudden are you raising this story as an example of what religion necessarily produces? I don't think he's defended that. Well, it, it makes his argument sound incredibly weak and shoddy because I think that any, any sensible person with any kind of an open mind is going to read this and say, well, come on, you got to be kidding me. You're trying to say this is how all uh, people of faith raise their children. I mean, it's, it's or really— even, but, but really, he's not saying that. He's saying 
the religious mind necessarily will lead or open the door to this kind of thing. But this goes back to what we said in the first show or one of the first two shows. Look, we're fully willing to hold hands with him and condemn stupid religion, oppressive religion, abusive religion. You know, in this particular case, on a number of levels, I mean, violating the principle of children belonging to their parents, violating the principle of an understanding of baptism. This is it's, it's superstition. That's exactly what it is. This is one of the reasons we have the Protestant Reformation, because people in the name of Christ were practicing paganism. Well, that, that gets us into one of his criticisms here and something I think we can we can work with a moment, because part of the rationale for why this was done, supposedly, and I don't know all the facts of the case, maybe it was entirely misrepresented, maybe most of the story is fictional. I, I have no idea. But the the point of it is this. He draws a number of conclusions from them about religion in general. And one of them that he says is this story illustrates the remarkable perception by the religious mind that a sprinkle of water can totally change a child's life. So the rationale for the Catholic Church to use these Gestapo tactics to kick down the the door and whisk this child away and train him in a a convent is because it had been sprinkled with water and therefore was made a Christian. And we say, fine, okay, if if you— if that represents the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church about baptism, that's fine. But that's not what the Bible teaches about baptism. No, not at all. It's not what the Christians who have followed the Scripture— Throughout the history of the church, have understood about baptism. We don't practice that, and it's easy for you to base your whole argument and draw a conclusion that religion is child abuse based on this extreme story. But it's just, it's it's idiocy. I mean, this kind of argumentation does not fly in any circle. It certainly would not fly in any of his biological, scientific, you know, classrooms. And yet he wants to wield this and and draw again this radical conclusion: child abuse. And it's also, he's not going to allow for us to use this argumentation when it comes to someone like Mao or Stalin, who were avowed atheists, who denied the existence of God. In fact, their whole goal was to train up their people to not believe in a God or to have religions. And so when we would point that out, they would say, oh, well, no, what you have is a person who is a little bit too much drunk with power and abused that power, even though what he basically said was true. Well, we would say, no, the problem is that humanity does get drunk with power, and that's what you're witnessing here. The fact that the religious excuse was used is just that, just simply the excuse for the abuse of power. Bad religion is bad, and bad religion has bad consequences and bad fruits, and this is an example of that, like John said, as Pastor John said, assuming that it's true. This is a bad example of religion, but... I. You know, so we agree with you, so move on. I mean, it's, it's begging the question. All well, right? More than that, though, it's not simply an example of bad religion. It's an example of typical humanity when it's drunk with power. And this is the kind of thing, again, he hasn't accounted for, which we covered in the show on morality, is what is it that makes man this way, and why would you condemn this? In your atheistic, evolutionary worldview, why is it wrong for one group of people to take a child and raise it as opposed to the original parents raising him? Well, well, especially in 19th century Italy, would have been far better for this young boy to be raised as a Roman Catholic than a Jew. There's probably all kinds of advantages that he could have received economically, socially, uh, and in a whole number of different ways because he, he wasn't a Jew. So on, on pure Darwinian uh, perspectives of looking at this story, there shouldn't be any moral outrage here at all. In fact, he should be commending them for doing the thing that was in the best interest of the child. Now, I don't agree with you. I'm just saying looking at it from his angle— 
That's how it should it should appear. As I recall, he said, as atheists, we're really, or this was a friend of his, this uh, high-tower friend of his, as atheists, we're really not for anything. Right. But I'm anticipating having a good lunch. Well, ha, 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 why don't you just go Dawkins and have your good lunch and let people do whatever they want to do? It doesn't matter in your worldview. You have no basis to condemn anybody else for anything else they do wrong. And, and these religious authorities uh, were not for having a good lunch. They were excited about a child abduction and trading him in a, in a convent. I don't understand his moral outrage. It's it's suspicious and it's strange. It, it makes you think that his overall program is something other than uh, pointing out that it's abuse. It seems to me like he has some sort of ulterior motive that the uh, government might be able to have more social uh, power in engineering the the family life or whatever. It's difficult to understand all of his motives. But you have this baptism uh, illustration here. You also have another thing here that he seems to be very outraged about, and he mentions this not only in this chapter, but other parts of the book as well, and that is the concept that a child could be labeled as a Christian. He says it's wrong to label them as a Jew, a Muslim, a Christian. And and his smug, cute little way of illustrating the point that he's trying to make here is, is well, we don't label uh, young children Marxists or capitalists or Republicans or Democrats. Everybody seems to believe that that's repugnant. We all agree on that. So why should it be that we would label a little child Christian or Catholic? That's the, that's what their parents are. That's not what they are. Well, I think that's very interesting. Immediately when I read that, what came to mind was I had no idea that Richard Dawkins was a Reformed Baptist, <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, that he believed it was inappropriate to teach a child born into a Christian family as a Christian because, of course, he hasn't had time to come to an age of accountability and profess his faith yet and receive the sign and seal of the faith which he has embraced. So Dawkins actually has a lot of allies in the church because these are people who would assume that view. So it's kind of funny, though. Like He, he makes these outrageous statements like this and says that you have no right to label the child. It's like, okay, what are you going to label him? Much? What is he going to be labeled? He has to be labeled something because he belongs to the family. The family is Christian or is Muslim, and therefore that is going to be the worldview the child grows up in. There's no possible way to grow up in a vacuum because a vacuum doesn't exist. Why not be outraged at calling a little child that grows up in England uh, English? Or a Briton, or a kid in Scotland, Scott. I mean, it, there's a similarity to this. Look, he says. Well, he does say. Look, I don't have any problem with them, with you calling that child a child of Christian parents, but it's abusive to call him a child. Well, our question is, why isn't it abusive to label this child neutral? Because from our perspective, there is no neutrality. It's a false neutrality. He's tried to argue that there's two options, religious extremism, or religion in general, which is all extreme, or neutral. And we're saying, no, 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 actually, your worldview, what you call neutrality, is actually a philosophically incoherent, indefensible position. So for you to label a child as neutral, in your understanding of neutrality, is just as unfair as any other label. Well, this finally brings us down to the last talking point that I want to examine here in this chapter, and really it the others pale in comparison to this because as i read it i was shocked so shocked i had to back up reread and it, I, I i scratched my head a few times and i was wondering whether i really could believe what my eyes were seeing on the page here because after all this other nonsensical argument that that he he outlines he finally comes to one which 
really will, will get will blow your top here because basically what he does is he tries to show you how bad training your children up in religious instruction is by uh, making a comparison between two terrible things. On the one hand, he says you have the evil, and unfortunately he doesn't even say it's that evil, of child molestation, of sexually abusing children. He has an extended section in here talking about the uh, hysteria that's prevalent today where people are, are running around hysterical about pedophiles and, and child abuse and all of, most of it's concocted or maybe if not all is, a great portion of it is. And besides that, even if it really did happen, it's, it's not that big a deal. Life goes on. I mean, it could be worse. But then he compares it to religious instruction. And basically he says that training your child up in the dogmas of the Christian faith, is is a worse form of child abuse than sexual molestation. And, and I know that sounds shocking, but this is coming right out of his book. As we were preparing to do the show, and as I was thinking through the chapter here and his conclusions, not just comparing, but calling religious instruction of a child and religious labeling of a child worse than then physical child abuse, physical molestation, a thought had run through the back of my mind and passed away. So, man, this guy's really got something messed up in his background until Pastor John called me and said, hey, did you read the quote on page 316 where he's talking about um, this this mentality, of this lynch mentality of people trying to find child molestation on every corner? He says, it is clearly unjust to visit upon pedophiles a vengeance appropriate to the tiny minority of pedophiles who are also murderers. Okay, so he's talking about a case where, uh, you know, I can understand how somebody is, like, outraged to the extreme, not only that somebody has molested a child but also killed them. He says, listen, all three of the boarding schools that I attended employed teachers whose affection for small boys overstepped the bounds of propriety. That was indeed reprehensible. Nevertheless, if 50 years later they had been hounded by vigilantes or lawyers as no better than child murderers, I should have felt obliged to come to their defense, get this, even as the victim of one of them, an embarrassing but otherwise harmless experience. So basically what he's admitting is that some Anglican priest in the course of his religious training played Gumby and Pokey with him, and now he's, well, now it makes sense to me. That uh, that somebody that's so messed up, and, and believe me, I'm not rejoicing. This is a horrible thing. This is horrific that this Richard Dawkins as a boy was abused in whatever sense he was by this, this religious instructor. You know, now I can understand maybe why his thinking about this issue is so disproportionate with the truth. I mean, to, to even begin to speak of child molestation, and, I mean, you don't approach the issue of child molestation in terms of criticizing the lynching that's going on. I mean, if anything, to me, I'm, I'm happy to see that people who have abused children are getting called to account and that parents are, again, now trying to take responsibility for their own children and that they are watching their children, trying to protect them against the sickos that are out in society. And if the parents are being a little bit too careful, well, good. I mean, they have a duty and an obligation to protect Dawkins. His parents didn't do it. His society didn't do it. The, the religious environment in which he was in didn't do it. And that's reprehensible. But it really is astounding that you would have a guy here arguing in print that child abuse was less damaging 
or, or sexual abuse was less damaging upon the psychological makeup of a child than religious instruction. But but it's not just that it's inferred. It's not just that it's the subtext or the tone. It's what he says. Listen to this, page 317. Once in the question time after a lecture in Dublin, I was asked what I thought about the widely publicized cases of sexual abuse by Catholic priests in Ireland. I replied that horrible as sexual abuse no doubt was, the damage was arguably less than the long-term psychological damage inflicted by bringing the child up Catholic in the first place. He's quick to supplement that story with the example of a, a woman who wrote to him who said that she remembers being sexually abused as a seven-year-old girl. And uh, she also remembers about that same time in her life having a friend of hers who belonged to a different religion dying and having been instructed, I don't remember if it was specifically on that occasion or just the general instruction of her church, teaching her that that other child went to hell because she didn't share the common faith. Well, a couple of things stand out in my mind about that. First of all, look, we'd have to know more about the situation, but maybe the way in which the parents of that girl handled it, being part of a different religion, was not appropriate. I mean, we would never say to a child who lost their friend of a different faith right away, and this is John's, Pastor John's point earlier, you know, we don't go around, you know, laughing if somebody in another faith dies that they go to hell. I mean, the Christian God is not doing that. He doesn't take delight in the death of the wicked in the first place. But the second, the second point is, look, again, it's assuming that your worldview is philosophically defensible. I mean, on the assumption that atheism in general or uh, this neutrality that he talks about in general is a legitimate viable option, then yeah, to teach other people things contrary to it would be wrong. But we don't share that assumption, and he has never defended it in the book. Atheists have never been able to, to give a, a coherent account for it. So again, to, to me, it's just begging the question. But there's another thing that the argument assumes beyond that. It assumes that he has presented enough evidence to show you that there is this direct, dramatic, terribly destructive psychological negative psychological impact upon young children being raised in religious communities. Surely it must have been very traumatic for this young girl to lose her her Protestant friend as a, as a child, and then to think of the the terrible the terrible fact that she may be going to hell. But that's one example. It's as if that right there is enough to broad brush a, across the entire board with one stroke every child's experience in 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 a religious home in a religious setting. It's not even close. He gives one more little anecdotal evidence of the the terrible, destructive, negative psychological effect of children being brought up in religious environments with his little example of Pastor Ted Roberts' hell houses. Now, now you have to remember why he's bringing these up again. He's trying to justify the idea that sexual abuse is less destructive upon a child than religious instruction. So here's his next example. You have the little girl here, her terrible experience, and now Hell Houses by Ted Roberts. And this guy apparently runs some sort of a scared straight program in, in a church setting where 
you bring in rebellious young children, I think generally probably from Christian homes, if I remember the story correctly, and what they do is they have a whole bunch of trade, uh, trained paid actors in there to act out the horrors of hell. Some Somebody plays the devil, somebody plays screaming person in the corner or something like that. And basically the whole point of the project is just to scare the hell out of these kids when they come in there so that they'll be scared straight, they'll come back to Jesus, and they'll listen to their parents. Okay, now that is absolutely outlandish. That is completely ridiculous. Does not have a shred, a shred of, of biblical support to it, okay? I can't imagine uh, more than about point zero 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 nine tenths of people who would call themselves Christian who would think that that has the slightest bit of legitimacy or biblical basis to it, okay? How can these two examples constitute evidence to, to, to propose such a just an outrageous position that sexual abuse is better for a child than than the psychological abuse of being raised in a religious environment. It's just well, astounding he can make these claims, well, and people are letting him get away with it. That's true, although, John, I don't know, I might dispute your, your estimate of the percentage of Christians, at, at least in the U.S., or what he also includes Ireland in the picture here about people that would do this. I mean, the modern version of Hell's, what, what did he call it? Hell's, Ted Roberts' Hell Houses? It's he- Hell I've heard, House. I mean, I've, I've uh, in recent memory, there was a traveling circus called Hell's Flames, Heaven's Gates. And it wasn't only directed at children, although I know it was really promoted among American evangelical youth groups. I'm sure you can find out about it on the Internet. I'm sure they're still doing it places. It's advertised. They, they would tell you to invite all your unbelieving friends and family, and you go to a, a dramatic presentation of hell, basically, and uh, showing everybody what they're supposedly up against here. Look, no matter how popular it is, our point is that it's perverted. It is perverse religion. It's not true religion. We think there's a very precise way in which the Lord has instructed his people in his word to consider very grave realities like hell, and it is not in the context of hysteria and whatever. It's in the context of a full-orbed teaching about God and his world, about the preaching of his law. It's to be done by those appointed to talk about those things. It's to be done by parents to their children in the most dignified way that is possible considering the gravity of the, the truth of hell. But, you know, no matter how popular it is or isn't, I mean, we reject this idea along with him, but we find no basis in these you know, hysteria for the conclusion that all religious belief and training of children is worse than physical child abuse. So now let's deal with somebody who's grown up in this so-called moral neutrality, which is actually a rabid atheism, with the assumption that there is no purpose to life, that there is nothing after death, that there is no moral accountability. You've met these kids. These are the ones who are walking around like zombies. They don't think life matters. They're the ones asking all those existential questions but not expecting an answer, who are doing everything possible to get some sort of sensation physically so that they don't feel completely worthless. And they are the ones committing suicide because they don't see a reason to live. These are the ones who are destroying themselves physically through sexual activity, through drug use or whatever else. This is what happens. And that's why perhaps he's willing to say that the sexual molestation isn't so bad because if you have nothing to live for, then at least being molested gives you a sense of existence which is as depressing a thought as I can imagine. But I think this is where Mr. Dawkins has been reduced to. And this is what he wants for all of our children to have, is absolute hopelessness. Despite all the 
nonsense he throws in at the end about the value. The fact of the matter is, if there is no purpose in life, then there is no reason to live. And that you can see in the minds of those who are trained in his system. Maybe you're listening to the show, you don't accept our claims. You've at least, using the common moral zeitgeist that Dawkins advocates before, can see the, the preposterous nature of this conclusion. That training children in religious ideology is... Worse than child abuse? I mean, think about some of the conclusions that you'd have to draw if you believe that. Here's one of them. He draws it himself. He talks about the story where Inca priests are sacrificing a young girl, burning her alive, basically, as a sacrifice to God. Now, how does he analyze the situation? He says the Inca priests cannot be blamed for their ignorance as they sacrifice the girl to the sun god. What they can be blamed for is indoctrinating the girl to believe in the religion and be a willing participant, giving up her own life to the sacrifice of these false gods. Did you hear what he just said? He said that we're going to temper the moral depravity of these people taking an innocent child, so to speak, and sacrificing her, burning her at the stake. Now, we would agree with him that it is repugnant, it's repulsive that they indoctrinated the girl in a false paganistic religion, an indefensible, incoherent pagan philosophy to make her a willing participant also. But we don't lessen the blame somehow for them actually murdering this girl. I mean, this is why we don't tolerate in just governments whatever people's crazy belief systems are. We don't tolerate murder. We certainly don't tolerate murder of children in religious practice. I don't care what somebody claims to believe. There's no, there's no neutrality here. There's no neutrality that you can maintain. Because if you try to maintain this false neutrality, you see what you end up doing. It's what Dawkins does. It ends up softening things like sexual abuse of children. It ends up softening sacrificial murder in the name of, of a false god. We don't accept that. And I don't expect any of you to accept that, whether or not you're a Christian. Well, in view of all these things, you might ask yourself, well, how in the world is Dawkins going to wrap up this chapter and wind down the book? I mean, how do you top this climactic point where you're comparing sexual abuse to religious instruction as a child in the home and say that sexual abuse is far better for a child than to learn a few things about God and the Bible? But the interesting fact is here, as he wraps up the chapter, he makes an argument for why we should teach our children the Bible. In an ironic twist, he says on page 343, Surely one's ignorance of the Bible is bound to impoverish one's appreciation for English literature. So here you are at the end of the book with this ironic twist of Dawkins making this argument for why, well, yeah, it's bad for you to learn about the Bible and about God at home. In fact, it's worse for you to have that happen to you than to be sexually molested. But we can turn you over to the educated elite, the illuminated at school, and they can teach you the Bible as you should understand it, as purely this this scrapbook full of mythology and miscellaneous tales of events that happened long ago in faraway places, and then you're going to learn to appreciate the stately cadence and style of some of the Hebrew poetry and the elegant prose and and many of the features of the Bible that we ought to appreciate from a pure literary standpoint. So here you have at the end of the book, it's just fascinating how he concludes this way, arguing that, yeah, there actually is a place for some religious instruction— And specifically, there is a place in our curriculum for our children to learn about the Bible. Yeah, I think the point here is that, again, he seems to be ignorant that the Bible makes claims about itself beyond literary points. 
I mean, anybody who's going to be fairly, objectively, intellectually instructed in the Scripture is going to see that it, it says a lot more about itself than Dawkins claims it says. I mean, it seems obvious to me that you wouldn't want anybody to read the Bible because the Bible promotes this idea about itself that it speaks of metaphysical worldview truths that are beyond what Dawkins seems to be accepted. And why would you want to expose a child to that kind of ridiculous and damaging mythology? That in in and of itself, according to Dawkins' worldview, may be bad enough Worse even than child abuse. Well, not only ridiculous, but maybe even dangerous. Suppose one of those child, one of those children, actually starts reading the Bible literally and starts taking seriously what it says. Then you're responsible for exposing the most dangerous kind of volatile intellectual uh, information you could possibly give them, which will uh, hopefully not scar them psychologically for the rest of their existence, but it'll certainly warp them morally and twist their outlook on reality. Right. I wouldn't want to send my child into a den of child molesters to learn that, you know, child molestation is wrong and you ought to watch out for them. That's just my point. You know? And, and, and they're, oh, yeah, sure. Now, the child molesters are, are claiming that, that they're good for the children and that. Hey, ch- they love children after right, all. Right. And it's actually, it was argued, right, for that different points in the history of philosophy that the purest kind of love is the love from a man to a young boy. So, you know, what would be the harm in exposing them to that for purely, say, you know, historical reasons or helping them to think through the thought, the thoughts of history? It, it is ironic in a sense. Well, I want to conclude by bringing you back to the beginning. At the outset of this book, Dawkins said, you can be an atheist who is happy, balanced, moral, and intellectually fulfilled. And by the time you get to the book, I think we can all understand what that means. That means that you can be free to have all the sex you want and there's no consequences. You can be a child molester and you're doing better morally than if you taught your children about God and the Bible. You can maintain an intellectually incoherent worldview and offer no account for reason, logic, science, uniformity of nature, and at the same time attack every religious fundamentalist zealot nutcase out there and feel not only morally superior, but intellectually smug. Those are all the benefits you can have of being an atheist if you buy what Dawkins says in this book, The God Delusion, or you can look at all these arguments from an objective point of view and compare them to the truth, to the facts, to what really exists And you can begin your search for real meaning in life, and that's finding it in the existence of the one true God. We trust that as you think your way through these shows and the material presented here, that you'll be led to conclusions which are consistent with the way things really are, and that is you live in a world created by God, and we are all subject to him whether we like it or not. We want to thank you for staying tuned with us on Sinners and Saints. Join us next week as we tackle more topics with the truth of God's Word on Sinners and Saints, Theology with an Edge.